0: We are continuing uh, today a series uh, that will last through the rest of the summer. It's a series through the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. And the name of the series is God's Distinct People. And we're exploring what does it look like when God creates a family, as a, in, in many ways like a father, and then gives that family his characteristics. He sends his spirit and actually fills a people with distinct godlike characteristics, what is that like? And what we see is that it's beautiful. It's amazing what God does. Because what he does is he creates a, a bold, multicultural, multiplying, beautiful, distinct family known for their freedom, known for their holiness, and, and also a family that provokes questions from the larger culture. Questions about God to which the gospel is the only answer, the only satisfying answer. So what we see in the book of Acts is that, that, the, that the, the, the God the Father, through Jesus, will send the Holy Spirit upon an ordinary group of people and build a family out of them, make a family out of them. Um, and um, they provoke questions through their multicultural, bold, humble, holy common life together. The broader culture asks questions because of who they are. The gospel is the satisfying answer, and the church continues to grow from there. Now, today we're going to observe one of the most intriguing moments in religious history. Jesus Christ, after he rose from the dead, um, he he went to encourage his discouraged followers, and then he asked them to gather and pray in a city where he himself had been shamed and, and not vindicated. So Jesus did not go and vindicate himself in Jerusalem. He, came, he went to encourage discouraged followers. And then he told them, go into the city where I was publicly shamed uh, before, before all of Jerusalem, where I was cast away like a scapegoat sent outside the city and, and crucified, um, and I want you to go there, and I want you to pray. And then Jesus would would send. He told them to go pray in the city where he had been shamed, Jerusalem. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to these 120 followers, about the size we have here today. And he made them do strange things through his Holy Spirit. <laughs> and and almost a you know a large gathering. Uh, of, of Jews from around the Roman Empire gathered around them and asked the question, what's going on with you? And in that, sm- it created a small moment of opportunity. And then that moment of opportunity, Jesus will speak a message through Peter, one of his followers, one of, one of the 120, that would cause his church to grow 26 times in one day. Now think about that. Here you have Jerusalem, where, where Jesus' reputation is like, He's done. Okay, we've answered the Jesus question. We put him to death. We proved that what he said uh, wasn't true. We proved that he was a blasphemer. Okay, his re- no one respects Jesus anymore. He's been shamed. Okay, he tells his followers that bear his name to go to Jerusalem and pray. They'll do strange things. They'll speak in all kinds of languages that will provoke questions. And then Peter gives the answer and the church grows 26 times in a day. So, um, and that's just the beginning. This day is just the beginning. Historians, sociologists, they puzzled over this question. How did the church grow from a small sect of 120 people to a massive global uh, following so quickly? In this moment of weakness that we will explore today, Jesus' church will explode. It will expand and it will spread through the whole Roman Empire. So here's a key question. What was the message? What was the message? Everyone wanted to know what's going on here. The question was provoked. Peter gave a message. What was the message? We're going to explore it today. Um, And it's really important that we get this because it's a message that can speak to us now. This is one of the beauties of the Christian church, is that yes, we can study it historically. And we can see the impact it had, but the same message can speak to us in a fresh way today through the Holy Spirit, which is present with us today. The first part of this message is probably the toughest thing to hear, and that is that we have made a tragic mistake. We've made a tragic mistake, and that's the first part of Peter's message to all of the onlookers who wanted to know what's going on with you all. The people that Peter was speaking to, when, it says, uh, when he says, "Men of Israel," in verse 22 he says, "Men of Israel." consider this: the men, that, uh, the men and women that Peter were speaking to longed for God, and they longed for God's deliverer. They lived under the sword of the Roman Empire. and they knew that something wasn't right. They wanted to be delivered. They wanted someone called the Messiah. Who would deliver them? They thought we're going to worship God. And we're going to ask God for a deliverer. Raise up someone from within our midst to take care of the problems that, uh, that most vex us. And they searched the scriptures and waited patiently for God to send a special hero who would teach them, who would feed them, who would liberate them, who would lead them to the promised land. They wanted a king that was gentle and strong, like a really good shepherd. They wanted someone like their old King David, someone who just seemed like he was a son of God, like God's special person, someone that they could be proud of, someone that God had sent. They prayed, their forefathers had prayed for thousands of years to God for his deliverer. And in a stunning act of humility, God answered that prayer by coming himself. They didn't see this coming. But God, in a stunning act of humility, became one of them. And he said, I'll I'll be the deliverer. I'll just do it. Not only that, I'll come. I'll share their life. I'll share their customs. I'll, um, I'll share their pain. I'll let the Roman Empire make me feel intimidated as well. I'll let the Roman Empire kill me. I'll teach them myself. I'll feed them myself. I'll share my father-son intimacies with them, with my own human voice. That's just beautiful. It's a beautiful part of the, of the, of the grand story of the gospel, is that God just said, hey, I'm just going to come myself and, and, and answer their prayers with my own presence. It's one of the most beautiful things in Christian theology, in, in the Christian truth, is that, is that God became a man. It's a, it's a truth that we can't fully understand, but it's just beautiful. And the father wanted to make sure that, that when he sent his son, everyone would notice. He said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Glorify him. I have glorified him. And he gave his son power to heal and to do miracles and to teach in a way that opened their eyes. And, and he sent him into Jerusalem with a donkey. It was like, hey, Jerusalem, don't miss it. Your deliverer is coming, just like Zachariah said, he's he's humble, but he's on a donkey. Uh, don't miss it. Uh, signs and wonders. This is the guy you've been praying for for thousands of years. And they totally missed it. it, it they killed him. It was so tragic. And it'd be like someone throwing you a surprise birthday party and you thought it was an attack. And, and so you attacked them and killed them. Sometimes we talk in premarital counseling with different couples about how, how sometimes someone's making a bid towards you in a marriage or in a friendship, it doesn't matter. They're, they're like, it's like they're lobbing you a tennis ball for you to hit it back. And you think, oh, it's a grenade. I've got to attack them. I've got to lash out at them. So tragic. You, that wasn't supposed to be that way. Peter says to them, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Like maybe Jesus even fed them. These guys, that, the, the men and women listening to Peter, they perhaps were fed by Jesus himself. Maybe some were healed by Jesus himself. He was among you. How precious. Jesus didn't just incarnate himself to humanity. He came to your culture You were the first fruits. You were the first people he wanted to reach with the love of God. He came to you. He touched your skin. Verse 23, this Jesus, yeah, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You didn't notice. This was my delivery, this was my deliverer. I sent him out of love for you. And you killed him. You killed God. Not only did you not notice that it was God, not only did you not notice that it was the deliverer, you missed all the signs and cues, and then you killed God. It was a tragic mistake. How many of us have made tragic mistakes of our own? How many of us misread the cues, misinterpreted love, and thought it was an attack, and went after someone who's reaching out to us? I was, as I was studying and thinking about uh, this, I thought of a story from back in the day. I was in the zone of junior high. I can't remember exactly when, hanging out with a bunch of friends, eating together. One of my friends gave me a compliment but I thought it was an insult. And like that, I lobbied back at him the worst set of words that my eighth grade mouth could muster. And he just went silent. And then I saw his tears later, and it just cut me to the core. And he said, Aaron, I wasn't insulting you. I was... I was Reaching out to you as a friend. I felt so bad. I didn't have to say those things. That's the worst thing. I I could have just accepted it, seen it for the compliment that it was. But instead I lashed out and I, I hurt a relationship. I hurt a friendship. It didn't have to be that way. How many of us have lashed out at someone who was reaching out to us in love? How many of us have ignored God when he reached out to us, when he was trying to get our attention and trying to help us absorb the incredible depths of his love and we just resisted him because we thought he was the enemy. How many times have we done that? How many times have we, have we done this with people that, that, that loved us? We sold them up the river for a bag of cheap goods. It didn't have to be that way. We used them. We discarded them. Many of us carry regrets. Regrets. We carry shame. We carry guilt for mistakes we've made, for tragic mistakes that we've made because we misread the cues and we got it wrong and we lost a relationship or we lost fruitfulness. We lost something that God, a gift that God had given us because we said no. We crucified and killed what God sent in his love. It didn't have to be that way. You know, when Dylan Roof walked into Emanuel uh, Church in Charleston on Wednesday. Do you know he was welcomed with open arms? He was there for an hour? One of the, the woman who survived told him at the bond hearing, as we told you on Wednesday, we enjoyed you. Do you know that he, he confessed to, to the police that he almost didn't do... He almost didn't carry it out because the people were so nice to him. It did, he didn't have to go through with his act of hate. It could have been swallowed up by love. How beautiful that would have been. What a story we would have had to tell. If he had just said, I can, here's my gun, I confess my sins, I, I, I receive the love that you're giving me. I was wrong. It could have been that way. But he made a tragic mistake. They stretched out their arms of love to him and he put them to death. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now there's evidence later that this message got through. The tragic mistake part got through to them. But there's another part of the message we need to hear, and it's one of the deepest mysteries and greatest joys of the Christian story. I don't want you to miss it. Don't stop with the mistake, friends. Stay with me to the second part of the message, because this is so important. Not only have we made a tragic mistake to throw away and kill love that came our way, God is working a brilliant plan. God is working a brilliant plan. I don't care what you've done. God is working a brilliant plan. It's masterful. It's past, present, and future. It's where the Christian story breathes oxygen of hope, into our suffocating souls that are choking on our own guilt and mistakes. God takes all of our sins and mistakes and screw-ups, and he turns them around, and he makes good things out of them. He doesn't do our mistakes. We do our mistakes. But he can take our mistakes and do with them what we could never do, is he turns them around, and he makes them do good things. He, he actually makes it part of his larger story of redemption. He works true, good, and beautiful outcomes from our most tragic sins. Friends, don't miss this. God works true, good, and beautiful things from the things that we've done wrong. It is so important that we do not ignore this part of the Christian story. It's it's the most beautiful part of the Christian story. This gives us great hope. This gives us great relief. This gives us every reason in the world to put our guns down and stop resisting God and stop resisting love. Here's the first part of the brilliant plan. He resurrects what we've killed. He resurrects what we've killed. Look at verses 24. Uh, uh, Sorry, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was delivered up to death by the plan and foreknowledge of God. Does that mean God killed him? No, it doesn't. Lawless men killed him, as Peter said. But somehow this works into the mystery of the story of God renewing all things. You might ask me, Aaron, how does that work out, logically speaking? How does it work out that, that things that we do that are evil, God can do good things with? And you know what? I will tell you what the Christian story, uh, Christian theologians have said for millennia? That's the answer. That's the answer. How is it that God takes evil things and works good things out of them? How is it that God makes His plan come true through our sin? That's the answer. I can't break it down logically for you. I can only point you towards the beauty and the mystery of the cross. From God's definite plan... The humble servant and humble king, the deliverer who's mighty, was also the one who was slain and crucified. And God resurrects him. God resurrects what we've killed. God raised him up, verse 24 said, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes Psalm 16. David, the one that they were all looking to as the model for the, for the, uh, for the deliverer, David himself says in Psalm 16, you're not going to abandon me to, to the grave. And Peter's like, hey, David's in the grave. Who is he talking about? You believe David, right? David was a source of authority for them. You believe David, right? David was pointing towards the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate David, the ultimate king. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. The Lord Brought Jesus back to life after he was killed? Because this is how God rolls. This is how God operates. The Lord restores the years the locusts have eaten. Things that have been killed, marriages, friendships, your walk with God, churches, even, families, God can raise them up back to life. There's a beautiful prayer that I'll probably get wrong, it's from Good Friday. Sorry, it's from the Easter Vigil. Let the whole world know that the things that have been cast down are being raised up. Things that have grown old are being made new. And that all things are being reconciled to God in Christ. This is what God does. He resurrects things that have died. He restores the years the locusts have eaten. There's no mistake that you've made that you think is forever, that is forever. Not as long as God is alive and God's alive in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Any mistake you've made in the hands of God and in the timing of God can be resurrected. You've just got to stop carrying it and making it your own. You've got to give it to him because he's the one who does it. We love, we love underdog stories. This is not an underdog story. This is a story of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit making all creation new, the things that were originally good. He can make, after on the other side of death, he can resurrect and give it an an increased power and an increased glory. He resurrects what we've killed. Number two, he exalts what we've desecrated. What we've put on the ground and stepped on and desecrated, he will exalt to the highest place. Verses 33 through 36 says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Remember, he's saying this in Jerusalem where Jesus was, was killed as a common thief, shamed his clothes stripped from him, crucified before everybody, mocked. Oh, crown of thorns. How, how, how does that feel, son of David? I mean, he was just, in the, in the most cruel way, he was shamed. And this is very important in, in ancient cultures. If you were shamed publicly, you were done. God exalted him at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father, verse 33, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Messiah came. His Lord was exalted um, and it's evident verse 33 um, uh, Peter says Peter says this it's being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing so Peter's saying this look Jesus is alive and in fact how do how do we know this we just spoke the gospel in your original language how did that happen They have no answer. It's because Jesus has been exalted. Jesus exalts and honors what we have desecrated. And then we have to do something with him. We have to respond in some way. There's a moment, there's a really beautiful moment where both the the depth of their mistake and the brilliance of God's plan come together. And they realize, as Isaiah realized in the temple in Isaiah 6, woe is me. God is holy. I am sinful. Something doesn't match up. I'm pressed into a moment of, uh, of crisis it, that needs to be resolved, and it needs to be resolved now. Verse thirty-seven says this: They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart by this message, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The difference between God's glory and my sin needs to be resolved. They wanted it to be resolved. The message got through. And Peter's resolution to this is the beautiful mess of baptism. The beautiful mess of baptism. Yes, you've made a deeply tragic mistake. And through your tragic mistake and through his power, God is working a brilliant plan to resurrect what we've killed. And now you are invited in to the beautiful mess that is baptism. Baptism, he calls them to baptism um, in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just a few words about baptism here. Number one, baptism is messy like a birth is messy. We become, as the scriptures say, like children when we enter the kingdom of God. Baptism is, is messy when, uh, uh, like a birth is messy. Okay? As we become like a child and we just say, I need to be born again, I need to be made new, I'm confessing my sins, I'm confessing Jesus' Lordship, and I'm being baptized as a sign of what's happened in my heart. And, um, you know, if any of you have seen a birth, you know that it's both beautiful and messy. At the same time, there's liquids everywhere. Um, The baby cries a lot. The baby needs to be fed. The baby needs to be nourished and held close to its mother. When you or I receive the sacrament of baptism, it's connected to our confession of sin and being made new, to repenting, and it is so messy and so beautiful. We become as infants. In some ways, all baptism is infant baptism in this this sense. Even if you're an adult, you have to become like an infant. Baptism is messy like a birth is messy because we become like children. Secondly, baptism is messy like deep cleaning is messy. Peter refers to confessing their sins, repenting from their sins. When you come forward to repent, all the junk comes out. You confess all of the betrayal, you confess all of the mistakes, you confess all of the guilt. You don't have to carry it anymore. It can come out and it's beautiful and it's good. You confess all the ways that you've fallen short. You confess all the sins that the Holy Spirit reveals to you. And it's messy, like deep cleaning is messy. It always gets worse before it gets better. It's messy like a birth. It's messy like deep cleaning. And we're baptized into a beautiful mess as well. The church itself is a beautiful mess. And baptism is that waterfall that we walk through to enter the church. Verse 41 says this. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Let me put this in perspective for you. Okay? 3,000 people came forward to confess all their sins. To 120 people. I want you to imagine, we have about 120 people here. I want you to imagine 3,000 people from 70 different countries coming to confess their sins and be baptized. Let's say all of you are authorized to give baptisms and hear confessions of sins. I mean, I'm going to need help. (laughs) You have a line 25 feet deep, 25 people deep. 25 people are waiting to confess their sins to you and be baptized by you. And then you're going to be family with them. You're going to share life with them. Imagine this. They're not from your country. They're not from your tribe. They're not from your ethnic background. They have different ideas about how things should be done. But you're going to be praying with them. You're going to be sharing meals with them. You're going to be sharing life with them. Your rhythms will change. In some way, there's going to be what people call the third race, the third culture. This is what they called the church. They said, oh, yeah, that's the third race. Neither Jew nor Gentile. Somehow a third race has been born. Suddenly, you've got new brothers and sisters. You've never met them before. Suddenly, you're godparents to all these kids. The church is a beautiful mess, and when we're baptized, we're baptized into that beautiful mess. What was ahead for, for these? So it went from 120 people to 3,120, 26 times larger. What was ahead for them? Racial reconciliation was ahead for them. Praise God. The Roman Empire needed it. We need it. Um, what was ahead for them? New daily and weekly rhythms as they learned to walk with God together. We'll look at that next week. What was ahead for them? Spiritual and physical healings, brought about by God. This is no. There's no incantations here. It's just in 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 their environment. Physical and spiritual healings happened. Miracles happened. Angels visited Peter in prison. He got out. Um, there were unlikely conversions of uh, uh, someone who was against the church, murdering people within the church, persecuting them, became one of the leaders. That's messy. That's, that's tumultuous. Um, there was confrontation with political and spiritual enemies. So, so Satan would push back hard. The, the enemies of the church would push back hard. We'll look at that as well. They were pushed out of their beloved Jerusalem. They came there for pilgrimage. or They lived there and they were pushed. They were sent all over the place, sent to strange places. And we're going to track all the things that happened. After they were baptized into the beautiful mess, they started multiplying and they started, they st- they started reconciling. And they started to be able to tell their story of what happened. That was what was ahead for them. So what's ahead for us? What's ahead for us as we absorb the same message that Peter gave to his hearers. You know, every Sunday, we've got prayer ministers here. They're up in this direction. They'll be wearing a cross. And uh, they, they use um, a, a, a tool of the ancient church, a very, very simple tool. It's called holy water. And holy water is an ancient way that the church reminds us of our baptism or an ancient way that the church kind of prepares us for our baptism. What a better way to be... to You, know, you have a, a three-dimensional, tactile way to remember... God's saving act in baptism, the power of the Spirit. And so maybe today there's something that you want to confess. There's a mistake, there's guilt that that you're just like, I want to confess this, and I want to prepare for baptism, or I want to remember my baptism. Well, the prayer ministers are here, so that's ahead for you, or for anything else that you need prayer for. Um, So come forward and confess, and and, and come forward and receive the Holy Spirit. Confess. maybe you need to confess racism maybe the events of this week make you realize I have racist attitudes running down my heart and, and, and I need to confess that and be healed um, maybe you've attacked someone that was attempting to love you maybe you need to confess something to do with sex or your body maybe, maybe greed, maybe running from God maybe resisting or ignoring God Or maybe you've slandered somebody come forward and confess it, there's no shame God's working a brilliant plan And if you've not been baptized yet in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tell the prayer minister and we'll make plans to baptize you this summer. That's okay, Susan. Yes. If you're turning to God for the first time today, I just want to let you know that the first year is going to be tough. It's going to be a beautiful mess. The first two months especially will be really tough. People who cross the threshold into the kingdom of God, there's just lots to come out. There's lots of things to confess. There's lots of ways that the Holy Spirit needs to touch your heart and life. And it's going to turn you inside out and disorient you. That's okay. That's part of the beauty of what happens in baptism. Or, or maybe if you're if there's some if there's an area of your life that's being renewed, like it's been in the it's been shut away and in the dark, and you've been trying to manage it, it's coming out today, it's gonna be kind of a little messy. Praise God. Let it be messy. It's joyful. Uh, Just that invitation's here any Sunday that you're here, okay? Um, Here's another thing that's happening for us. On Wednesday night, we're going to gather to pray at the ministry center, and I'll give you the address, 4619 North Ravenswood. On the third floor, that address is in your bulletins. We'll open the doors at 5 p.m. You want to come at 5 p.m., we'll open the doors. I'll hear confessions. There's an Anglican liturgy for it. We'll walk you through it. Show on up, start praying at five if you want. Seven o'clock, we'll start a prayer service um, where we'll confess, confess and praise and thanksgiving. This is what, when we come into the presence of God, we're like, wow, I gotta confess my sins, but also like I wanna praise God for who he is. I wanna thank God for all of his gifts. So uh, Nicole Song is gonna lead that prayer service. I invite you to join us at 7 p.m. on Wednesday. The more we live into the beautiful mess of our baptisms, the more we are revived and our Bishop Stuart Ruck defines revival as when the life and power of God manifestly overwhelms the power of sin in our life. We're going to see it happen in the book of Acts, and I invite you to open yourself up to that reality in your own life. I want to invite all of us as a church to open ourselves up to that reality. Revival is when the power and life of God manifestly overwhelms the power of sin in our life and resurrects what we've killed and renews it, restores the years the locus locusts have eaten. We've made a tragic mistake, but God is working a brilliant plan to make all things new. And the process from here to there is a little messy and very beautiful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.